this is giving the game away an attempt to shine light on areas of the modern sporting world that aren't talked about that much. We had the idea to do a podcast and we originally just said to each other, right, let's interview some sports people about their mindset for approaching elite sport. But as that idea has grown and come on, we've realised that there is just so much to be encapsulated in the world of modern sport that we could talk about. And so each person we interview will try and reflect a different corner of that world. We've interviewed a whole range of athletes from football, cricket, rugby, basketball and more. But we've also tried to speak to people from within sport in other areas, such as broadcasters and agents and psychologists. And we hope that the interviews shine a light on areas of sport that you may not know that much about. Today, someone we're really excited about and one we really enjoyed recording, um, we've got Daniel Guion who's the top football lawyer. He's described by Forbes as one of the most sought-after advisors um, for players, agents and clubs. And we sort of got Daniel on because the feedback we had about the episode with John Smith was really good and people were commenting saying that they really liked the insight that it provided into the business side of football. It's a completely different world to what we're in with clubs, agents and all these high deal transfers. And it's definitely a world that I'd like to be a part of and this podcast I think just gives a little insight into that world even if it's just if it's just for half an hour or so. Yeah I've always been massively interested in the business side of football but it's not always a side of football you really get to see although I do remember watching the Leeds Amazon documentary not that long ago which gives a good insight into business of football and transfers in football and there's that crazy clip in it of Dan James going to Leeds to sign for the club and he passes his medical he chooses his number he gets pictures with the Leeds shirts and he's literally at the final stage of signing but for whatever reason it doesn't go through and there's whatsapps and calls and emails flying back and forth and it just stressed me out watching it so I can't even imagine working on something like that and that is something that Daniel, who we'll be speaking to today, does on a daily to day basis. So it'd be really cool to hear his insight and hopefully he might be able to give us a few stories a bit like that one. Um, but yeah, here is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. If we just sort of start with everything that's happening at the moment, obviously, Coronavirus has had a massive impact on a load of industries and we're just wondering about the football industry, what's been the main impact and what's it been like working in the industry during this whole thing? It's almost like where to begin, <laughs> sometimes I find. But I think this is almost how strange that I find it where because things aren't quite syncing up at the moment that you've got the Champions League qualifying rounds occurring before the final of the current seasons of the season of the Champions League. And that's like seen as the norm, really. Like in the beginning, I remember a lot of the conversations that we were having were around fundamentally, is the season going to be able to restart? And, you know, you've got leagues and countries like Belgium and France and other that obviously didn't. So I think it's first a huge kudos to leagues like the Premier League and the EFL that for the championship that the season could be completed, really, because I think otherwise that would have spelled quite big issues and concerns and then if you remember rightly as things progressed some of the concerns were almost like well you know what happens to out of contract players if the season hasn't finished will they continue to play will they sign upon new deals and 
there's plenty of examples of players that haven't played what will happen if the season doesn't finish and then there was the whole neutral grounds issue with the Premier League about whether the games were going to be played so you know almost like every day there was another type of regulatory legal practical pragmatic hurdle to overcome and you know we're far far away from you know normal so the, the truth is there were loads of difficult reactive pieces of advice I was giving on wage deferrals, on wage reductions, on uh, broadcasting issues, on commercial deal sponsorship matters. And they just had to try and be dealt with in the, in the best way possible. But it was it's certainly going to probably be another chapter or two of uh, an updated done deal book at some point. I've got to try and think about how on earth I'd write that, but that's for a different day. <laughs> <laughs> it must have just been a really strange time in terms of you were probably working on things that you weren't actually certain about what was going to materialize because there's such uncertainty so for example if the leagues weren't finished then there might be teams who were in the top two and if the season was null and void they might have a legal case for well we should have been promoted so how are we getting compensated for that because it must have just been a really really weird thing to work with and there have been those cases but it was like there have been those cases there's been like things like south shields case there have been cases in uh, the Northern Irish League. There have been cases in France. Um, there have been matters, as you know, with like Stevenage and Macclesfield at the bottom of League Two. So there's been there's been tons of stuff going on. Um, so there has been quite a lot of litigation in some ways, but it could have been exactly as you said. It could have been an awful lot worse. In lockdown as well, you've obviously found some time to be quite active on your football law Instagram. And we're both thinking it'd be quite cool today if we could go through a few of those concepts that you have on your gram and just break them down because ultimately they are the same topics that get thrown around thousands of WhatsApp group chats and pub tables every year. Um, so the first one that comes to mind is the concept of a £35 million transfer and how you've explained before that that isn't exactly what everyone thinks it is. So would you be able to just explain that a little bit? Of course, I'll try and give the abbreviated version for this one. So it's, it's really the... A £35 million transfer is never really a £35 million transfer. It's usually more and less at the same time. Um, and the reason why I say that is what tends to happen is, and we take that £35 million number, is for, if that is the, the transfer fee, the headline transfer fee, what usually happens is transfers are paid in instalments. And what happens is some parts of the transfer fee are fixed um, paid regardless, but usually paid over a number of instalments. And some parts of the transfer fee are contingent, i.e. dependent on particular events. So, for example, it might actually be that only £20 million pounds, um, of the £35 million pounds may be actually fixed, i.e. guaranteed. So it might mean that £10 million pounds is paid on the day or within a certain amount of days of the transfer being completed, and then another £10 million pounds on the first anniversary of the, the transfer, for example. And the remaining £15 million, pounds, which then takes it up to 35, might be dependent on the club being promoted. It might be dependent on the club getting into the Champions League and the player playing. It might be particular player uh, performance-related matters as well. So the point being is that when you see the £35 million figure, it might not be that £35 million figure. At the time of the transfer, actually only £10 million is actually transferred hands. But the other point generally is, as well is that that figure doesn't take into account the player's wages. And usually for a multi-million pound transfer for an elite player moving to an elite club, sometimes the actual wage liability could be more than the actual transfer fee that's uh, ended up being paid. 
Yeah, definitely. I think you see that, for example, on Instagram posts, it will say like, oh, this club's done good business, for example, and it say bought for this amount and then sold for this amount. But that obviously doesn't account for the massive liability that is, you know, their massive wage packets. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, I think there was obviously another really interesting one that I've heard you talk about as well, which is to do with shirt sales, because that's obviously something that's just circulated around pub chat is when a player signs for a certain club, people say, oh, well, he'll make it back in shirt sales. But it's obviously not as easy as that, is it? No, and uh, it's it's one of the important bits to to recognise. Which you know, traditionally, a brand like Adidas or Nike will tend to pay an upfront amount to a football club as more or less an advance or a guarantee against certain amounts uh, as a result. So, usually, let's just say you know, a particular club may get thirty million pounds a year from Nike or thirty five million pounds a year from Adidas. But what that means in practice is that. Usually, unless particular benchmarks are hit, i.e., you know, Nike sell two million shirts, then only over that particular amount does usually a profit share occur. And usually, that profit share is very weighted in favor of the brand in terms of Adidas or Nike or wherever else it might be. Now, where things have evolved a little bit, and it was quite interesting because of the Liverpool New Balance uh, dispute that happened a while ago, where New Balance were trying to retain. The, the their kit deal with Liverpool, while Liverpool wanted to obviously sign with Nike. Um, Liverpool's deal with Nike is now structured a little bit differently, whereas they'll take um, a smaller upfront number, but will receive um, a greater profit share as a result. So whilst previously it would be fair to say that shirt sales or additional shirt sales wouldn't necessarily contribute hugely to the bottom line, for Liverpool, now it seems like the reverse is actually true whereas they will make significant margins on each particular sale. So whereas even though they're, you know, I think the amount is 25 to 30 million pounds that Liverpool will receive each year as a guaranteed amount, their forecasting is that based on, you know, LeBron wearing the Liverpool shirt, maybe Serena or Drake or particular Lakers or another sort of North American sports franchise, you know, doing some type of collaboration. They think that, that nearly a year for Liverpool could still be worth up to 70 to 80 million pounds, which is obviously significant. So in a way, the counter argument now applies for particular deals, which is the additional shirt sales will contribute quite significantly to the bottom line of clubs like Liverpool. Yeah, it might not be the norm, but um, as a big Bristol City fan and quite sad when it comes to Bristol City, I'm pretty sure they've taken quite a lot of money from me. So that might have funded a few players here or there. But I think another thing that would be quite interesting as we talk about sponsors like Nike and Adidas, New Balance, as you mentioned, what is the contractual obligation for players if they sign with particular sponsors? Like firstly, for example, Messi, obviously sponsored by Adidas. Is he allowed to wear Nike trainers if if he wants to? And secondly, when he chooses a sponsor to get boots from, does he choose boots that he thinks will enhance his performance or does he choose boots that are going to pay him the most money? Well, it's it's a pretty unique category of of agreement, really. So, you know, outside of the player's employment contract, probably a boot deal for the elite players is probably the the second most significant source of income, really, for that player. So, you know, almost all the players that I speak to or work with through agents that I work with as well their number one priority is to make sure they get the boot that fits the best, that they have the, um, you know, almost literally the best relationship with. The boot needs to be absolutely perfect for them. And a lot will sacrifice quite a lot of money 
because they like a Puma boot or because they want an Adidas boot or they want to wear Nike or they want to wear New Balance or whatever else it might be. So usually the number one priority is the boot has to fit perfectly and they're willing to take that sacrifice if necessary. But if a particular brand who the player wants to work with is offering very good money, then obviously that's a win-win situation. The way that then restrictions work in boot deals is, let's just say you're messy and you've signed with Addy, there will almost certainly be restrictions in that contract which say you can't wear anything Nike, obviously, um, in a personal context. Now, why that's different is there will always be carve-outs for your club team and your international team. So in this sense, we have Messi, who is sponsored personally by Adidas, which means when he's walking around the shops, he only can wear Adidas, really, and can't wear Nike. But as soon as he steps into the club setting, he's obviously a Barcelona player um, sponsored by Nike. Um, And so he has to wear the Barcelona Nike clothing. And then when he steps out for Argentina, I think Argentina is still sponsored by Adidas. So that aligns with his personal brand. And that's why in a lot of cases, it's quite important and can be very rewarding for players that are completely brand aligned. So for example, the, the late one of the late most latest brand aligned players is obviously Virgil van Dijk at Liverpool, where he's got a personal deal with Adidas. Liverpool are now sponsored, sorry, personal deal with Nike. He's now sponsored by uh, Nike through Liverpool. And then obviously, I think Holland is still is still a Nike deal as well. So that complete brand consistency can be very important to, to brands who want to be able to pivot personal, the club and the international at the same time. Would that be the same as Gareth Bale with Madrid and Wales and Addy? Exactly. Same with Neymar. The two big guys, Ronaldo and uh, and Messi, are two of the examples of not aligned, unaligned brand deals. But on the whole, there are a number like Kane as well, for example, of you know Spurs, England and, and, and personal as well. Just having a look at the shirt you've got behind you there, I can see you've got a Hector Bellerin one. It's just made me think about how Hector Bellerin is the key example of a footballer who displays interest and has an influence in so many areas outside of football. You know, he's got his own podcast. He has walked the catwalk for Louis Vuitton, massive into sustainability and veganism. And surely these are all parts of his image that clubs must take into account when they would be looking to buy him. So I'm just wondering, for a modern footballer, having all of these elements as part of their image, does that add to their value or does it actually take away from it? Well, it depends how you class value, I guess, is in the end. If we're talking about pure transfer value, I think ultimately the vast majority of a player's value is in what he can do on the pitch and on training. But there is certainly a great value add um, in a player being able to be more than just a player. And that's not necessarily, I mean, like player brands just for player brand's sake, but players who over a long period of time with their you know commercial strategy guys are thinking about how to create an authentic message as to what you know their their passions are what they want to get involved in you know if it's sterling on his brilliant social causes if it's rashford again who's done an unbelievable job in covid who's now you know front cover of vogue for example if it's hector who you know has walked for louis vuitton down paris fashion week i think it was and his social social causes that he have his his veganism his environmental causes as well. I think in a way, what players and the, the best advised players are able to do is not just be a brand for being a brand's sake, but for 
conveying the passion points that they have as to the authenticity of their identity. And that then becomes the most important thing. And that is not, maybe not necessarily of huge value to the club per se, but it's of huge value to the player and putting across what he or she believes are the, the causes and the things that they want to be able to advocate in different ways. Obviously, you've touched on there people like Rashford and Sterling who have done great work in speaking out on important issues. Is that something that would be in a player's contract? Like, are they advised in their contract that they can't speak on certain issues or do they have free room to? There's usually quite generic, you know, non-disparagement clauses and ma- making sure effectively that people don't say things they, they shouldn't do, bringing club or otherwise into disrepute. And that's why, you know, players on the whole tend to be very, very vanilla in what they say, because ultimately, sometimes their authenticity is being coached out of them. Stay straight, stay simple, stay on message, um, and then you can't get into trouble, really. But the, the problem, I say the problem, not the problem with it, is that then fans want it both ways. They want to be able to jump on the bandwagon and say, why, don't, why aren't players more authentic? Why don't people, doesn't actually people say what they think? And then as soon as someone says what they think, they just jump on them and, and get all tribal, like Bernardo Silva with his tweet recently to Liverpool fans about, you know, well done for winning the league, but why are you getting on my back about different things? And the truth is, I remember when Ronaldo did it a few years ago in the Euros where he was having a go at the Iceland team for being really defensive and whatever else it was, and it wasn't really football. And everybody's saying how much of a disgrace it was that he wasn't showing respect for everybody. You know. My own personal view is I want them to be able to say what they actually think. You know, I think there is so much drowned out or punched out of uh, people in the public eye because they're concerned, and rightly so, at the backlash to saying something that might be mildly um, opinionated. And, you know, I actually try and give a lot of credit to people that say it um, a little bit more like it is because they're willing to put their head above the parapet and say things that maybe are authentic because that's what they feel rather than not saying anything because it'll be more less likely to cause a stir. Yeah, I agree with you, Daniel. It's nice when players actually do show a bit of personality and and actually speak their thoughts rather than just keeping quiet because they're strictly managed. But I guess it seems like players who have retired uh, seem to be the ones that are more open and speaking, but that's probably because they're not uh, contractually obliged, as you say, to, to keep quiet. Speaking of contracts, you must have obviously worked through loads and loads and loads of contracts. Is there anything, without obviously breaking confidentiality, anything particularly interesting you've seen in a contract or any strange clauses that you could tell us about? Well, there's more. There's probably more than a book, really, that's all sort of quite public knowledge from, from the Dundee book that I wrote, where you know there's, there's clauses about Stefan Schwartz not being able to go into space or <laughs> Neil Ruddock with his weight clause or, you know, uh, Rafael van der Vaart not being able to wear red boots, or Stigging Bjornaby, you know, not being able to go skiing, or, you know, cooking classes that were put in contracts, or, you know, partying clauses where, you know, Neymar's friends when he was at Barcelona were flown over a certain amount of times a year. So, you know, in my experience, the truth is everything's relatively vanilla, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the, uh, the real odd clause that um, comes out of nowhere, but you know, generally, they're a lot more boring, a lot more straightforward than uh, than probably the media makes out as the truth. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw quite an interesting one where Balotelli got 
offered a million if he didn't get sent off three times in a season. I just thought, like, that's got to be some sort of incentive. But he probably still didn't do it. He probably didn't manage it. But quite an interesting contractual clause I, I was hearing about recently is relating to Philip Coutinho. So obviously, he plays, he's, he's at Barcelona. That's his parent club. But he's on loan at Bayern Munich, of course. Smashed Barca in the, uh, in the Champions League. And apparently, in his clause from when he signed for Barcelona from Liverpool, it said that if he were to win the Champions League while at Barcelona, Barcelona would have to pay Liverpool £5 million. Now he could go on to win the Champions League with Bayern Munich, which may potentially mean that Barca would have to pay Liverpool £5 million. Is that the case? Who knows? It's the real (laughs) truth. Who knows what the clause actually says? I would be surprised in the transfer agreement if the clause is broader than just Barcelona, him winning the Champions League for Barcelona, i.e. it being just winning the Champions League. Now, also for a number of reasons. Number one, because he was more or less their record transfer. So it would have been unimaginable that he would be on loan somewhere else, possibly scoring against Barcelona in winning a game. So in a way, it seems that it would less likely be a clause that would impact. But let's just say for argument's sake that it is. I would have expected that if there was a clause stating that if Coutinho won the Champions League with any club, that Barcelona would then have to pay a fee back to Liverpool, I would have expected that then Barcelona would have pushed that obligation onto Munich by way of the loan agreement so that then if Munich had won it, that Munich would have to pay Barcelona what Barcelona would be potentially contractually entitled to pay to Liverpool, but who knows whether that's the who knows whether that's the case or not. And just sticking with recruitment, how have you seen the recruitment of players change over the time that you've been working in the industry? Because I've heard you say that agents now, for example, will employ data analysts to track players. So, how what massive change have you seen in the recruitment of players? Well, I, I just think it's a, um, a natural progression. There's great agent, there's great data agencies out there, like guys like Twenty First Club that we work with on quite a lot of matters generally. And the idea, really, if it's work, they're working club side or player side or agent side, is you know effectively to try and provide useful data to assist in a negotiation. It might well be that the negotiations come to a bit of a deadlock. And that in a way, you know, no one can see where the value of the player might be in terms of um, numbers, in terms of comparables, in terms of benchmarking, etc. And sometimes just having uh, particular statistics, particular valuations, particular barometers um, helps in being able to either justify something to the side in terms of one side being able to take that away and say, actually, he's more valuable or less valuable or we thought about doing it in such a way. So I, I think it's only a, a pretty natural, normal thing now that an agent, if they're in a, um, a tough negotiation, generally will come armed with the most amount of information they can to be able to show value to the club, either by way of transfer or by way of contract renegotiation. So, you know, if it's in terms of injury record, if it's in terms of minutes on the pitch, if it's in terms of, you know, international call-ups, if it's in terms of comparing to this player and this player and this player where they were at that age um, in relation to where they fit on the pitch in relation to where they are in terms of the team dynamic. You know, there's so many different things that can be utilised to be able to to assist. But, you know, like anything, a negotiation is only as good as your negotiation position. And, you know, whilst that can sometimes be helpful to club or player side, you know, it's just one part of the, uh, the overall negotiation pie. 
We spoke to a, an agent a few weeks ago, John Smith, uh, who used to be married on his agent. He was, he was really interested in talking about all the sort of things agents do. Um, but he was talking also about how uh, in contracts, they're looking to focus a bit more on adding performance-related bonuses rather than just pure uh, wages. Is that something you've seen as well? It's a massive change. In a lot of the elite clubs, um, usually there can be quite a big split between what would be guaranteed payments and what would be variable components. And usually there are less goal bonuses and assist bonuses on the whole, and there are more collective bonuses, i.e. win and appearances. And the win and appearance bonuses are making up a larger proportion of the overall player salary than what it would have been definitely five to ten years ago. Now, it's not always the case that all the clubs are that way inclined, but the vast majority of the most forward-thinking ones, um, yes, certainly are. An appearance like can be quite tricky to define, though, can't it? There's a lot of, sure, there's a lot of differences across what constitutes an appearance of one club compared to another. Exactly. And that's part of the agent and all the clubs to push back or forward accordingly. So is an appearance just appearing in the, the starting lineup and starting? Is it being in the match day squad? Is it coming on for one minute? Is it being around for 60 minutes? Is it um, coming off the bench for 20? And appearance can be really important for a number of reasons. Most basically because, you know, if appearance is a big variable of a player's contract, then they'll want to make sure that they attain that variable but also appearance can be the basis for wage uplifts, for contract renegotiations, for particular bonus enhancements. So, you know, appearance is one of the things that I know a lot of clubs think very carefully about and agents also will try and structure to be as fair as possible to the player as well. Sort of the context you don't really think about as a football fan when you're watching, but like all these things are playing in the background, like a manager might be thinking about, oh, if I bring on whoever might cost the club 10 grand if it's before the 60th minute it's sort of context you don't really think about but quite an interesting case I saw was when Harry Redknapp was signing Jermaine Defoe for Spurs and I think Jermaine Defoe and his agent wanted a gold bonus in the uh, in the contract and Harry Redknapp famously said listen Jermaine's costing us 12 million and he'll be earning 50 grand a week like what do you actually think we're paying for to miss them so it it's quite an interesting one thinking about if there is a goal bonus in a contract, would that play on a player's mind as well? Like if they're through on goal, are they going to shoot rather than passing, even if the pass is a better option? Well, exactly. And that's, you know, Harry uh, inadvertently more or less articulated what is now the more modernising way of a lot of club thinking, which is we don't really care about individual bonuses because they can potentially, potentially not necessarily align incentives. The incentive should be for the team to win, not necessarily for a player to score a goal, um, where if, for example, there are better options available. So you're totally right. Um, there are still a number of clubs that will pay goal bonuses, but the, a growing minority of clubs are pushing towards win and appearances um, as the basis for the, the variables rather than you know individual related stuff. And just finally, obviously, I'm conscious of the time. So um, for you, obviously, you're a lot busier than we are, but... Um, you're obviously chairman of Football Aid Charity and I've seen you, uh, obviously, shirts behind you and you've auctioned off a lot of shirts for the Heads Together campaign. So as two people obviously run a podcast and talk a lot about people being quite open about mental health, it's obviously a great initiative. But we're just wondering in professional football, is it something that you've seen become more open over the last last few years? It's difficult to say, you know, because a lot of the time I, I do have relationships with, with a number of players, 
but none of them are on my, on my best pals as well as the truth because that's just you know the, the way of the world but the good thing is is that generally people are more open to um, having discussions if it is royal highness that's talking about matters if it's peter crouch it's in a way it's sort of like incremental the incremental sea change nothing's going to miraculously change overnight but what has to happen is the conversation needs to be normalized and as the conversation becomes more normalized normal guys like me and you guys um feel more confident about sharing our experiences of talking about stuff of being more open about the challenges that go on in our lives and, and other other lives generally and by doing that and by normalizing the conversation and it being quite a frank and matter of fact thing you know talking more about stuff is is massively important and i was really proud that football aid which is a charity i'm involved in was being able to collaborate with them um, with a heads up campaign because not only obviously can we able to help contribute a lot to great charitable causes but the raising of the awareness point that the clubs that came on board to retweet and to be able to post positive messages about everything you know it's uh, an incremental approach but one that i'm positive will provide real positive positive way forward for you know that more open discussion and more frank discussion generally no 100% i think definitely as well like seeing premier league players talk about it normalize it completely and i guess the nature of the industry obviously is probably quite difficult because as you've said, everything is getting increasingly taken down in data, every characteristic. Um, and that obviously includes mental characteristics as well. So players probably feel maybe a bit intimidated about speaking up about it because it could be something that's taken down and ultimately maybe affect a transfer, but it's maybe about getting past that and maybe normalising it a bit more, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally agree. It was just, it was interesting because I think that's what Danny Rose said a while back, didn't he, on one, on um, when he was being interviewed by... His Royal Highness about that particular point about a transfer possibly happening. One of the sporting directors or everyone saying, "Oh, well, he's a bit, you know, he's a bit open and talks a bit openly about his mental health issues and stuff." That being something of a disadvantage or a reason not to sign him or otherwise, and and obviously that has to play on players' minds when they're trying just to, you know, maximise their finite career, really. And yeah. is the best way to do that in the short term just to shut up and be quiet? Or is it best to be braver and feel open enough to be able to do that? And it's still a difficult balancing act. No, definitely. Yeah, I think the exact words he used, wasn't it? It was the club had to check whether he was crazy or not, which is obviously just absolutely mad because he was just being open. But. Well, guys, thanks so much for, for having me on. It was like it was amazing to, to chat to you all and Thanks for having me. Maybe we'll do another session in a few months' time, and we can uh, we can talk about some other bits too. Yeah, when you release uh, Done Deal too, then we, then we can have another chat. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Pleasure. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate that. No problem. Great chatting, guys. See you in a bit. So we now know that. Daniel is the type of guy to give people LinkedIn envy because um, he's just got such a sick job. He's on a day-to-day basis at the centre of all that is being discussed in boardrooms of Premier League and Champions League clubs and all the different disputes between agents and players and clubs. I just think it was so fascinating to hear from him today. We obviously interview a lot of sportsmen, um, but we obviously try to get on people like Daniel who are from just a different corner of the sporting world. And if that's something that 
you guys enjoyed is well received and we'll try to do more of the same for the next few interviews in the series I really enjoyed speaking with Daniel today. I mean, I enjoy talking about football with anyone, but to speak to someone who can shine such light on the inner workings of football clubs was genuinely fascinating. And it's just crazy some of the work he does, like on player contracts and transfers. And to be honest, just fair play to him. It sounds so, so stressful. And personally, I don't really think I'd be cut out for it. So fair play to him. But yeah, it was really interesting. Hope you all enjoyed it as well. 